Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, and we are in episode 245 right now. I want to thank our 40,000-plus subscribers, 73 countries now. We just added Cuba last week, Jim. We had Victor Mesa Jr. on, and he got us into Cuba. So added them to our list of countries supporting us, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. And yes, as my kids said it, and you may recognize it, Jim, from cartoons of long time ago. That's Fritz Kreisler on the violin, Ty Cobb's favorite violinist, mine also. But it's also the background music on a lot of the old Tom and Jerry cartoons. So if you're old enough to remember those, my, my daughter asked, she goes, you still going with the Tom and Jerry music, dad? And I said, yeah, we're going to do it for another couple of days. So, but uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thank you, Dave. Happy to be here. Yeah. And I know we, we talked a lot uh, throughout the week in pre-show, um, but we, we've got a number of topics we want to try to cover today. And as the audience, I promise you, we're going to we're going to tap Jim for every bit of knowledge he has on each topic. So um, we're, we're going to go get real thorough with it. But for, first topic we talked about uh, was was winning, um, you know, at, the, at these, I guess, tournament levels, grassroots levels. Um, and we're seeing the, the issues trickle up. Uh, I say, I guess not trickle up, but flow upwards to our major league system now. So what did you want to hit on with winning? Well, um, on a daily and weekly basis, when I'm working with clients, talking with their parents, even going to different tournaments with my son and uh, going to see other kids that I've worked with in the past play, questions always arise. Um, parents, they're looking for answers. I run into more parents than not that are just looking for answers and solutions and a little guideline to what should be done, whereas they're basically stuck in this world of travel baseball and the competition. And at times the focus of winning is placed on six, seven, eight-year-olds before they even learned how to play the game. Uh, and they're just looking for the answer. Is this good? Is this bad? What would you recommend? And, and different things like that. So this past week, I was just thinking in an overview, overview about common problems that I think that people come under and uh, experience when they're there. Their son wants to play baseball. Where should we go? What should we do? Um, as you know, we've discussed about it in the past. This this uh, Charlotte metro area that I moved into five years ago, it is inundated with travel baseball teams. And you go through all the tryouts and you meet the different people and in, in, in their organizations and it's very difficult to find a very solid developmental program. Um, there's good people working, but the emph emph emphasis once the competition starts, and sometimes the adults' emphasis because uh, they're competitors in their own right, it, it turns the competitive world into a negative world. And you just don't see the development going on. So I was thinking that the first thing that I would look for when we're dealing with, let's say I'm going to go little league age, eight, nine years old, is development has to come first. And one of the ways that we can see that development comes first is just in positional versatility. I'm not saying that everybody on the team has to play every position. No, but 
there's outfield positions, there's infield positions, and then, you know, there's pitchers and catchers. Each, each player, each young ball player, they should work equally about fielding ground balls and throwing them to first base or second base or wherever, or fielding ground balls in the outfield, fly balls and line drives in the outfield. How to hit a cutoff man, which base to throw to properly. Um, you don't get those experiences unless you're playing those positions. The other thing that the position versatility does is, one, different positions have have different arm actions or different throwing mechanics. The fundamentals are similar, but the outfielder is going to have a little bit of longer arm action to throw the ball farther. The infielder has got to be a little bit short and quicker. Um, and they learn to throw from the different angles. Okay, Physically, that's a bonus because now their, their, their muscular system, the proper muscular strength, the muscular stability, the muscular endurance is developed. And so when they're older, and let's say um, they're the quality shortstop and center fielder and they want to pitch a little bit, better, a little bit more, or they're converted into a pitcher, the conversion isn't a difficult move because they've already learned to throw from the different positions. Their body's already ready. The muscles are prepared. They've done this for a while. Uh, one of the things that you see regularly in professional baseball is um, they convert a guy from, let's say, a shortstop. All right, Shortstop maybe can't hit the curveball or he's struggling his first two years in the minors. And they've seen him pitch in high school, and they really like him as a pitcher, so they convert him to a pitcher. He's a full-time pitcher. Now he never was a full-time pitcher. The the day-to-day workload of being a pitcher is much greater for them, and they're throwing from this one consistent arm slot and arm action over um, a highly repetitive time. You know, 45-pitch bullpens, 55-pitch bullpens, Live game action, controlled scrimmages, games. They're thrown in a game every fifth day, possibly, if they're a starting pitcher. And the rate of injury amongst conversion guys in minor league baseball, major league baseball, is extremely large. Extremely large. And you you look at the factor that a lot of these guys that are converted that might might have played the middle of the field especially – they're pretty good athletes. They have pretty good arms. And then you say, well, why Why all of a sudden the workload? Yes, the workload might be too great for them at the start. But even if the workload is monitored and everything's done fine, why do all of a sudden we end up having these arm injuries um, for these converted guys, these these infielders or, or outfielders that are now turned into pitchers uh, and in many times catchers also? And my thought process is, one, because they hadn't really pitched enough. So psychologically, when they get in a game, they naturally try way too hard because they haven't been in that environment enough. And they're making this conversion to pitching when they're at some of the highest levels of baseball, you know, that we know we're in professional baseball. So if you go all the way back to when your child is eight or nine years old, um, if you had the mentality that when he was growing up, he was climbing fences and, climbing trees and riding bikes and running up hills and doing a variety of different motor skill activities, he'll have a wide base and a lot wide foundation and his body will be physically prepared to do whatever he has to take on. If you take that premise, now you look at long-term 
the actual long-term benefit for someone to later on in life play one position is the fact that he made multiple positions. He played multiple positions and he trained himself both physically and mentally to play all those positions, which then ends up in a better overall ball player when they're focusing on one position. Mm-hmm. And that can go back to, you know, in this day and age with AAU basketball and travel baseball and all kinds of other things. Um, you see a lot of organizations where, you know, if you don't play for them in the fall and then work out with them in the winter and then play with them in the spring, let's say in baseball, and here's this ball player, he wants to go play football or basketball. And he's 12 years old. So the specialization, we all know the specialization at an early age physically is extremely bad, especially in baseball because of all the different types of overuse injuries because of the repetitive nature of the game. And secondly, for me, mentally, because we've now limited the type of competitive environments or competitive situations that that individual is placed in. So how does that affect us? long term when we're trying to uh, make these different switches or play different positions or focus on one is if mentally we weren't in a different competitive environments and we were basically in the one environment that we excelled at when we get placed into an environment when we when we go to pro ball or college ball or whatever step it is and your ability level is now parallel to the ability level of your competition nine out of ten times you're going to start trying too hard and if we go back to our basics about the repetitive nature of the game, we try too hard, it's going to add up to failure because we're not going to perform and function the way we're supposed to be functioning, the way we're supposed to be trained. So when I go see uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 games, and over a course of a weekend, everybody plays the one position, that's tending me to, to believe that that coaching staff or that organization is attempting to notch as many wins as they can on that weekend and, you know, improve their national ranking. Or, you know, in the competitive world we live in, there's so many travel teams in the Charlotte area and they're all competing with each other to get the, the better ball players in the area. Um, so in a whole, it just, it just, it creates the whole, an aura of winning and competition, and it pushes development to the to the side. And um, the fact that many of these coaches are volunteers and they're good guys, maybe they don't necessarily know uh, the harm that's being done long term to an individual that doesn't play multiple sports, that doesn't play multiple positions. Um, I, I I got a question for you because I. What, what you're saying right now is really deep. And that's, that's uh, one of the many reasons why I like talking to you off the air and, and having this show. And, you know, I, I want to unpack a lot of this because our, our audience needs this stuff and they need it. They need it ground up into, to find parts, but the winning aspect now, um, the, the winning is, needs to be more accurately defined by these adults that are leading these kids because there's such an inertia right now blame it on social media, blame it on travel, whatever people want to blame it on. Parents are to blame. You raise your kid. You need to be the first educator of your kid. But winning, there's such an inertia for immediate success nowadays with these young kids. And the success is defined by these adults that you're talking about that are coaching these tournaments. 
And I, I don't make any excuses for them. They're all adults, whether they were accomplished as athletes in their time or they weren't. Uh, they need to remind themselves when they walk out that door to coach these kids. I say this phrase myself. I'm a former professional athlete, a former two-sport college athlete, and a 22-year veteran of college coaching. The phrase I say to myself every time I work with my kids or other people's kids is, this is not about me. This is not about me. And you, you, you tell me if I'm wrong. You and I have spent time at these tournaments together talking, watching our kids play. Um, does not the, does the, the team with the biggest pituitary issue at the young ages, aren't those the teams that usually win? Yes. Um, you know, the game of baseball on a whole has turned into, you know, bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, the skill, I don't believe the skill levels have actually improved. I think the athleticism has improved. Um, so if you relate that all the way back down to you're dealing with, you know, a tournament full of 10-year-olds, the bigger, stronger guys are going to win. And what happens is that's okay as we're approaching, you know, high school or beyond because your strength and your conditioning and your physical ability, yes, it, 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 it's important, extremely important. If you want to advance to where your natural ability could possibly take you. But, you know, sometimes you, you heard different statements or you see different posters or signs or whatever. And, you know, you go to a ballpark and, it, you know, I saw one, there's no nine or 10 year olds that are going to be signed to major league contracts today and different things like that. I, I, I think we all have a story in our past where, you know, the guy that was the star pitcher at 12 years old in Little League and probably played at the highest level in Little League, the major league, since he was 9 or 10 years old because he was just physically gifted and, and physically mature. Um, you know, by the time he got to high school or after, he, you know, everybody caught up to him. And now, unless he was extremely dedicated to – continually improve his skill level and his mental skills and the all-around game that he played, you know, he might not even be on the team any longer. Um, and, and that happens even if the person stays healthy. But in the environment we've created, a lot of times those 12-year-olds are now not healthy. I mean, we read all the time, you know, through research and, and even stories of, of, you know, neighbors' kids or kids on our team or on the comp competitor team, uh, the rise of 13 and 14 year old Tommy Johns is an epidemic. Yeah. Uh, this is where Dr. Andrews stepped in and created the uh, pitch smart guidelines for, you know, that you can find on MLB.com or usbaseball.com. And, and even if you just Google pitch smart guidelines, you're going to come up with, you know, all kinds of PDFs and the whole thing. Um, Dr. Andrews was like, we've reached the point where, you know, this is a continual epidemic. We're, we're creating an environment where this is happening far more than it should happen. Um, and I know that pitch smart guidelines and, and they received a lot of notoriety and, and, and many, um, different leagues and organizations adopted their policies when they first came out. But when you go to tournaments nowadays, I don't think anybody abides by the guidelines. No. Share with our audience what you're seeing at tournaments as it pertains to pitching. Um, 
you know, how, how pitchers are being used. There's rules, but they're being manipulated to, to the nth degree. Because you brought up Tommy John's. I would say, I think this, the numbers 55% of Tommy John's surgeries happened before the age of 19. That damage is being done when these kids are 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. It's not a... Yes. It's a cumulative thing. It's not just happening over the you know the year between eighteen and nineteen. What yes. are you seeing at these tournaments? How are they using pitchers? Well, um, I'll give you an example. Um, a fourteen-year-old, thirteen, fourteen-year-old came to me a couple of years ago. Very good athlete, uh, played multiple sports, and thought that he would be more attractive for to his middle school coach and his travel ball coaches, if he could pitch a little bit. And uh, when I first met him, and you know, he was 13. I, I used to kid him that he was at least 6'3". And he goes, no, I'm not 6'3 yet and everything. And then over a two-year period, I think he was about 6'4", long and lean, very athletic. And um, one day he came to me, excuse me, <clears throat> he came to me. And he said, uh, Coach, um, and since he was relatively new to pitching, we would do our workout. I would take him through his routine and the throwing programs and some of the exercises that I prescribed for him. Uh, and he was, as things were coming, coming together for him, we were up to about 35, 45 pitch bullpens um, when it was warranted. And he was making very good strides. And he came to me one day and he said, Coach, do you have, um, do you have anybody after me today? And I said, no, I don't. What, what's, uh, what's up? What are you thinking? He goes, could we try to throw a longer bullpen? I said, okay, we can do that. What, uh, what do you think nece- necessitates us throwing a longer bullpen? He says, well, when I pitch on the weekends for my travel team, it always seems like I start to get tired around, around 35 pitches, you know, sometimes 30. And I said, I understand, you know, if it's tough outing and, or an easy outing and it varies a little bit. And I said, but why the number 40? And he says, well, the team doesn't keep track of pitches. If I can throw more than four innings in the first game, then they won't use me again on the weekend. I said, okay. And, and what happens if you threw three innings and threw 60 pitches because you had a rough day? Oh, well, um, they would just pitch me in the, in the second or the third game. So I'm just trying to, like, make it that I can pitch more than four innings so that they only use me once on the weekend. And I said, well, how do they usually use you? And he says, well... If I throw three innings in the first game, then the second game I might throw one or two, and then the following day I might throw three. And it, and I said, have you thrown more than three? And he goes, well, sometimes three or four. And what do you think? Um, are you throwing around 15 pitches an inning, 20 pitches an inning? He goes, well, sometimes, you know, it's a little battle, and if the defense isn't too good and we make some mistakes, I mean, you know, I've – I've thrown more than that. I said, okay. So I I took a moment to myself after I w- worked with him. So he doesn't want to step on anybody's toes. He didn't want to present the negative 
uh, a negative attitude to anyone to tell the coach, no, I can't do that, or, well, I've thrown enough today, or anything like that, you know? And since the organization wasn't keeping track of, of pitches, their whole guideline was, I can throw this guy like three innings, two innings, and three innings. Yeah. And I, I was I was I was shocked to be honest with you. Yeah. A guy so, could throw a guy could throw a nine pitch inning and in those guidelines and rules it could be treated the same way as a forty five pitch inning. Yes. So it's yes. And um you know, these kids' mentality and this again I put it on the parents. I like if kids throw more often in terms of being on the mound for practice to, to, to practice their throwing. But as long as they're controlling their exertion, they don't need to go, you know, balls to the wall every time they step on the mound, every time they throw. And that's what we're seeing out there. I, I've got a question for you. Um, it goes back to when I don't want to take take you off track, but um, we've you and I have talked about we, we go back in time and talk about our days on the playground and, and playing basketball and whatnot. And, you know, winning is important. We, we, we don't want to discount that, but. Um, the way they define winning at these tournaments is different than how winning should be defined to these kids. It's, it's so skewed. For instance, at this tournaments that we're talking about, if a team loses at nine o'clock in the morning, there's no worries. They got another game at 12. And if they lose at 12, they're in the bronze bracket the next day at 10. And um, they're really, they're really ruining the definition of winning in that regard but on the same token, as you're describing here, that's why hopefully our audience doesn't get a brain cramp when I when I describe this. But the the way that these coaches are trying to manipulate the rules to win whatever ring they have based on the winning format of these tournaments is just insane. And it, it's almost like they just need to crush the system and start over uh, with this stuff. But I mean, do you see that as well? Like w- winning is de-emphasized in one regard, but it's being manipulated in another. If that makes sense. Yes. I, here's an example. I always bring up um, in a structured environment, I always bring up Little League. Um, so you're nine and 10 years old and you're not, you're not ready to play in the major leagues of Little League. So you play in the, in the minor leagues. Right. And at nine, you still have enough 10 year olds on your team where the, where the team's competitive and you guys play pretty decent games and, you know, everybody has an opportunity and, uh, but you're just working on getting better because you see how good those 10 year olds are. And next year you're 10 and now you're one of the better guys cause you did your work and you're learning how to be respectful and helpful to the nine year olds because they're your teammates and you play the game. Um, but you get equal parts of winning and losing and you actually learn. I'm not saying to be a good loser, but you learn that the competition, there is going to be a winner and loser. And then there's another day. Maybe I lost today and there's things I need to work on and I'll get better for the next game. In these weekend type tournaments, very few times, even though I'm a, I mean, a majority, 100% of my clients that I deal with, I have not come across, I've been lucky, a, a bad apple, so to speak. Okay, I do come across some kids that have 
have trouble controlling their emotions and the competition gets to them at times. Um, but I haven't necessarily seen someone who is that classic sore loser that just completely loses it and goes bonkers on his teammate because they made an error or something like that. But all of these people, when they come back and you see the Facebook posts and the different things, and it's all a celebration of, you know, what they're doing and there's nothing negative about it, but it's, they got a ring or they got picked for the all-stars or they come back and they say, Hey coach, I'm going to Florida at the end of the summer because I got picked to, the coaches picked me and the whole thing. Very rarely, unless it's stressed by the parent, do you hear initially Oh, we played four games on a weekend. We won three and one. It was a pretty good weekend. And then my individual conversation with the player would be, how'd you feel? And usually they'll start telling me how they performed, and that's fine. And I'll just let them say their piece. And I go, well, how'd you feel? What were some of the things you learned? What were some of the things that popped up in the game? Did you lose the strike zone if they were pitching? Did you lose the strike zone? What did you do to get back in the strike zone? Um, but the whole environment is the coaches trying to win and each player trying to be the star. So the, the players continually rewarded because the other coaches of the other team voted them to be an all-star. Well, the other coaches might've saw, saw him play one game. So it's almost like the ESPN, uh, you know, top 10 plays. So we've chopped the game down to, to the player. It's really not about winning the game. It's about having their performance be big enough in one of those games that a coach rec recommends them to be an all-star. Uh, he's not an all-star over the course of a 15-game schedule where every single coach in the league, which happens in little leagues, said, well, here's the top 15 guys this year, and they played 15, 16, 18, maybe 20 games. This is, I went to a weekend tournament, and I went 9 for 19 and hit three home runs, and now I'm an all-star. Well, an all-star for what? Well, so I can go play another weekend someplace else. Um. So what's lost in that environment is one, being on a team, two, being a good teammate, three, learning that what's important is if the team wins or loses, and if the team loses, then as individuals, we deal with, let's get better, and how do we improve to get better? Um, everything's turned into now this ESPN clip. Um, I can, I can relate back to my scouting days where, since I was a national scouting supervisor, you would go to all these showcases, all these – and it's all these showcases and major tournaments that um, this travel ball environment has helped to create, and then they enroll with them, and whatever the fees or exorbitant amount of money that they're paying to go there and the whole thing, and – 
the major league scouting system, they, they just bought into this whole process of, of in the private sector of private individuals organizing a tournament and inviting players. And most of those players, if they were the real high quality players, maybe played on that team for free while that organization had three or four other teams. And those kids didn't really have a chance to go anywhere, but their parents paid enough money in there so that the, the select crew can go. And you sit and you watch these tournaments and what really stands out is the guy that's there competing and he's competing as part of a team. And he actually knows how to play the game of baseball instead of simply light up a radar gun or once TrackMan got involved with perfect game, all of a sudden each day we're, we're getting, here's the highest spin rate on curveballs of all the pitchers. Here was a, and a lot of the scouting organizations were like soaking it up. Like, wow, I got all this information. Yep. But nobody knows how they get out. Yeah. Or did you watch the kid play the game? Yeah. How do you do in the game? What happened when he went three and zero on a batter? How many times did he go three and one and come back? How many times did he strike the next guy out after somebody hit a rocket off him? Did he know how to control the running game? Did he know, we don't we don't do that. It's the same I mean, on the other side of the ball too with the hitters. They 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 get the launch angle and the exit velo, and same with the catchers. I mean, we're seeing these catchers, and I find it laughable if I see another top ten list from one of those tournaments where catchers are throwing better pop times at the age of sixteen than Pudge Rodriguez threw. I mean, that's these parents buy into this stuff and they keep pumping more money into it. All they want to do is it's not about um, excellence anymore. That's my that's my biggest issue. It's become about influence out there and. Um, you know, all the things you're saying are, are right on the money. You, 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 you've been, a, it's, it's a very objective, very, uh, perceptive description of the, the landscape of what's going on up there. Yeah, Dave, I mean, the other day, this is, is and, and we're all involved in social media. We all, we all try to get our word out there of how you can help somebody or, or trying to do the best you can. And, and, and this is the world that we live in, but completely casual the other day um a friend of mine made a post and it was about the great season that ron gidry had when he went 25 and 3 and i don't know his era might have been 1.76 or 1.6 or whatever it was he struck out like 248 guys and well i i was a teenager i was watching ron gidry i was living in new york i was a yankee fan and when you watched every game that he threw, which I pretty much did that year, including the playoffs in the World Series, uh, it might have been 1978. So I was a junior in high school. He was absolutely outstanding. In, in my lifetime, I've, I've never seen that I can remember seeing a guy pitch like that, even though I know, you know how great Sandy Koufax was for six years and in 1968. Bob Gibson and Denny McClain were off the charts, something that they've probably never seen. I don't know what the greatest pitch season of anybody was. I have no idea. But I saw the post. There's a picture of Ron Guidry. It reminds me of my youth. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to share this because maybe someone else is going to have the good feelings that I just had. All right. So a couple of my cousins and a couple other friends responded, 
And then um, I relate a story that um, on uh, on television one day, I forget what it was, MSNBC or whatever, the one uh, reporter, his last name is Matthews, a big baseball fan. So he, he did an interview, roundtable interview with uh, Whitey Ford, Yogi Berra, Bob Gibson, and Hank Aaron. And it was a great conversation back and forth. All four of them were phenomenal. Uh, Matthews was sitting there. He was just beaming, smiling because he's just such a fan. And he asked Bob Gibson, he said, Bob, for a moment, I just asked you a serious question. You know, we've gone through the steroid era now in baseball and, and things, and, and it was much you know, far removed from your career. Um, and people are now talking about, because um, the interview might have taken place during the time of McGuire and Sosa. And they were like, and, and, and people are wondering if, if records are broken and different statistics, uh, should the statistics have an asterisk because of the steroid era? And Bob Gibson, in a very serious tone, said, uh, well, personally, I think that an asterisk should be on all offensive statistics after 1968 when they lowered the mound. Because as we know, uh, not only Bob Gibson, Denny McLean, but Bob Gibson is the poster child for this. We lowered the mound because nobody could hit. Right? I think I think in 68, if, it, if I'm correct, Yastrzemski might have won the batting title hitting 305. I think it's the year he won the Triple Crown. But the point is is that the, the hitting was extremely down and pitching was way up. So the way to solve it, just like we try to solve baseball problems nowadays, is we're going to lower the mound. Right? So Gibson's brutally honest answer was, I think all offensive statistics after 1968 should have an asterisk. Okay. Hey, it's a Hall of Fame pitcher. He has a right to his opinion. He has the right to say what he has to say. So I relayed that story um, because the people that had responded to the Guidry photograph and the numbers that I reposted all had fond memories. And then they said, uh, yeah, it reminds me of Bob Gibson in 1968. And someone said, well, you know, Denny McLean, 31 and 8, you know, this. And next thing you know, someone who I do not know posts the reply in there. And his reply, had to be 12 to 15 paragraphs. And it was all about, you can't compare errors, and I'm sick and tired of reading these posts. And I'm, it was the most negative thing. And he started talking about nutrition's better, and this is better, and that is better, and this is better. And, and he's throwing out a lot of facts that are correct, and then he's throwing out a lot of things that are not correct. But I'm like, this is the world we now live in, that this guy felt as if, and then he said, well, enough of my rant, but this is how I feel. I'm sick and tired of seeing these posts where people are comparing errors. In essence, nobody was comparing errors. They were, they were just telling stories from their youth and what they remembered and what made them happy and what they had seen and maybe what their opinion was. But you see this nonstop and you see it in um, travel ball where all of a sudden there's posts about this guy. Uh, and, and there's all these organizations that they probably do a, do a good job and, and they are beneficial. But when all of a sudden their whole social media account is everybody that came to our event and here's their spin rates and here's their exit velocities and here's my ranking. 
Here's my individual ranking for the tournament. Here's my team ranking for the tournament. Because this team won the tournament, they are now ranked ninth in the country. And well, I've never seen more national championships. Like I laugh because there's all these tournaments at Dub USA. Uh, you know, there's all these tournaments that dub national championship or all American, I should say, not USA. They dub all American. There's more all American camps now. I mean, I only knew one all American. That's when you're on the Olympic team and the, you know, national championship, there's like seven every weekend. There was one global challenge last weekend. It was, it was, <laughs> it was eight teams from like a five mile radius. And I didn't see anybody from any other continent or even any other like zip code there, but right. it was a global challenge. And it was, I mean, it was, the, it's the biggest joke I've ever seen in my life. Well, it, it reminds me of a conversation I had um, a while back with, uh, at the time that I was working for the Brewers and it was the general manager of the Brewers, Doug Melvin. And, and it was just one of these conversations over, you know, we were having lunch after meetings and all morning meetings and stuff. And he asked my opinion on something. And I said, uh, I said, Doug, the sad thing, I'll be honest with you is that, um, 10, 15 years ago, Major League Baseball could have taken control of this development process and created development leagues and development situations, you know, similar to USA Hockey and at the time USA Soccer. Um, But they didn't want to spend the money because the owners didn't want to spend the money. So whether you want to call that greed or their business decisions or whatever, it is what it is. And next thing you know, the entire development process in amateur baseball got turned over to private organizations whose main goal is to make money. Um, And now you see Major League Baseball, you know, probably 30, 40 years too late, but uh, they've come around and they've eliminated minor league teams. And that was solely because of money. But then they say, oh, we're creating these college development leagues. So the old Appalachian League is now a college development league, summer league. And, and you know, a lot of times it's, it's really just, uh, it's just window dressing. There's positive things come out of it, but it's, it doesn't really solve the problem of what's going on. The problem is at a much lower level, okay? Um, but I read a, I read an article the other day that, um, so USA soccer had this tremendous development program and they had, uh, their own development league and the whole thing. And because of infighting and different politics, it was disbanded. And now, especially on the woman's side, um, us so- soccer that some people feel is suffering because now it's become privatized and now there's three different leagues and everybody's fighting for this, fighting for this, and nobody can get on the same page. And, and I said, that's a shame because now you've lowered yourself to USA, you know, baseball, major league baseball and the way professional baseball is handled. Amateur baseball has turned into a money grab in many, many different situations. You have, uh, Many, many schools that can't can't even afford to fund their athletic programs, especially baseball. And next thing you know, everything's privatized, you know, and it's not privatized with the development of youth baseball players solely in mind. 
there's different organizations like the Pitch Smart and other things that are, they're trying hard. There's different doctors that are, that are trying to get the word out there. But we get to the point where you go to one of these tournaments and then you see some. And, you know, you can see some adults, some parents that are, that are they're great people. But in the heat of battle, when they're watching their son or daughter play, they just get emotional. And next thing you know, the competitive Knicks kicks in and this happens and negativity happens. Well, when you're in college or you're in professional baseball and maybe some high school levels, the players can handle that, can deal with it, hopefully. But when that environment's the same environment that eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12 year olds are being brought up into, there's not a lot of positive that comes out of it. Yeah. No, I, 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 I joke all the time, seemingly, and I use the word intelligent lightly, but seemingly intelligent people who have jobs that require, um, you know, some profound knowledge, lawyers, doctors, teachers, you watch them behave you know, in the face of their child potentially failing or not getting what they think they are entitled to. And they are just outright maniacs with how they act. And I don't know what happens to people. I, 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 you know, and you were too, I was a little sheltered by it from coaching collegiately for so long. And, you know, we have four young ones all under the age of 15. And I was just in shock my first go around and when I was asking my wife says, this is how people act on the other side of the fence or the, the bleachers or whatever. I mean, and it's like, and I mean, I go to games and I'm sure, like you said, people are always seeking answers out. I tend to sit away and God, you don't hear me say boo during a game. And I don't want to compare resumes with people at the game, but I'm guessing, you know, unless you're sitting next to me, I probably got, uh, you know, the best, if not the second best sports resume in any crowd I'm sitting in. And I don't say a darn word. I don't care what level it is, what sport it is, what gender it is. I sit, I clap. My kids know better than to come to me for playing time issues and whatnot. They don't do that. If, I, if they did, go talk to your coach. I'm not at practice. I'm not, I, I don't make the lineup out or, you know, whatever it is. And I dare say that, you know, if, if you want to play more, give, give him or her a reason to keep you in there. That's, that's my message. But these people act like, gosh, especially and you're you're at the you're at the younger ages than I am right now. So all those parents think that their kids, the next Ken Griffey Jr. coming through and that everything that happens on that field is life or death and is going to have a profound effect on their child's future. And in all honesty, nobody's ever going to know about it. Nobody cares about it. And nothing that happens on that ball field outside of the abuse of these arms and, uh, and the, some of the negative stuff we talk about, none of that's going to have any effect on that kid's future in baseball. It's just, it's a dead end weekend. Just have fun and enjoy the game. True. True. But even, even for the parents, I feel bad for the parents that are just trying to do the best they can to give an opportunity to their, to their child. And then they get stuck into this somewhat political environment. Um, you know, we, we, a topic for another day is all of a sudden, um, you know, all of these, Young elementary school kids, uh, by the time they get to middle school, are now reclassifying. Yeah. Right, so they're, they're homeschooled for a year, or they go to a private school, school for a year. They stay back in in fifth grade or sixth grade, and then now they're older than everybody when they play. Now, that's not a good idea when it comes to the way ba- major league baseball is scouted nowadays. 
but they're looking as far as getting money to go to college. It's so expensive to play college. And I'm going to try to give my son or daughter the most competitive edge they can. Uh, so on one side, you can kind of see it, but on the other side, it, it's because one travel ball, eight year olds play with eight year olds, nine year olds play with nine year olds, 10 year olds play with 10 year olds. Well, very limited time. Are you the person, are you the young guy in the totem pole that has to get better because you're playing with older guys? Yeah. Okay. I, I can um, honestly say, and I've debated with some of the guys I came up the line with, um, I know you've talked about in our private conversations, some of the really good athletes, whether it was, you know, whatever sport it was, we played multiple sports, but I, I, I don't know that I was ever the best player on any team I played on. And I saw that as an advantage. And I do that with my kids too. If they're the best player on the team, I move them up, um, let them play up, let them play against older kids, let them expose weaknesses, let them get better that way. But I think it works in reverse as you're talking about reclassifying. My parents are actually working in reverse now, making their kids play down, making sure they're the biggest, strongest kid on the field. And I don't, I don't know that that helps. I, I think it actually hurts. Well, in the long run, it, 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 it's not beneficial, in, in my opinion. But what's happening is, is that we're, we're creating environments in where we're trying to give uh, the young player every opportunity to succeed. We're, 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 you know, we're continually there to help them and push them. And even if it's in a positive way, instead of them figuring out for themselves, instead of the adult giving the young player a challenge. Let's see if we can overcome this challenge. Let's see. I, you know, sometimes I refer to as the fine art of patting them on the back and kicking them in the butt. You challenge them, but you let them know we're in your corner. Um, a lot of these tournaments, I, I'm not seeing a lot of. I'm not seeing a lot of young ball players with their with the smile on their face because they love playing the game. And they know the people are in their corner no matter what happens. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of smiles because they won a ring or or they were named an all-star or, or different things that at 10 years old. Now, if that happens and you're doing the development part correct, okay, it's icing on the cake. But, you know, I don't, I don't see it. I mean, but then you also have the parents that are trying to help the kids the best possible way they can. And, and they're doing everything right. And they uh, have a conversation with a travel ball coach and, and the coach, you know, tells them all the things that they want to hear. And next thing you know, that player might try for another team because it's maybe a higher level of ball or a little bit of a challenge. And maybe he thinks he's ready for that challenge. And or the parents are just looking around to see where's the best place for my son to play. The next thing you know, they give his spot on his team away or two travel teams. You know, they both started, uh, let's say four years ago, having tryouts. Um, you know, the, the last week of March. And then the one year, the two rivals, one has tryouts the third week of March. And then the next year, the other rival flips and has tryouts the second week of March. <laughs> because they want to have their team picked and they want to get all the best players before the other guy gets them. I mean, some of it is pretty ridiculous when you, if you lay it out on paper and you look at it. Um, one of the things, Dave, I, I think there's a, there's a point here going back to players and pitchers with this uh, pitch smart. 
and I know, you know, these are guidelines for youth players, but if you look at it, um, you're seven, eight years old, seven and eight years old, you shouldn't throw more than 50 pitches, nine and 10. And it just goes up the ladder, nine and 10, 75, 11 and 12, 85, 13 and 14, 95. And I understand that, you know, this is being put together. This was deeply researched by all the doctors and trainers and everything like that. But to think that when I was a pitching coordinator, players in A-ball, players in A-ball, their max for that day was 95 pitches. And here the max for 13 and 14 year olds are 95 pitches. Now, there's a couple of things that if you want to read between the lines, read between the numbers. A lot of times pitchers coming into pro ball, especially high school pitchers, by the time they get to a ball, they haven't necessarily perfected everything in their delivery. They're repeating probably hopefully around 60 to 70 percent of the time. So by limiting them to 95 pitches, you're just ensuring that they're going to get their work in. They're going to do what they need to do. But we do know that there's going to be a lot of pitches that I call effort pitches within that outing. And we, we're attempting to limit that. Um, hopefully in pro ball, there's pitching coaches and coordinators and managers that understand what effort levels are and what it looks like and who's repeating their delivery and not repeating their delivery, who's fatiguing during an outing, who's not fatiguing, or hopefully that's occurring. I haven't really ran into a lot of 13 and 14 year old coaches that go to that depth and that level to understand effort level when it comes to pitching. And yet the 13 and 14 year old and the 15 and 16 year old are at 95 pitches an outing. And yet, in the big leagues nowadays, when a guy gets the hundred pitches, they're they're thinking about taking him out of the game. So that in itself, and the concern that I have about it is that if you look, and, and you could just arbitrarily look by watching, if you have a little bit of background in being a pitching coach or a baseball guy, and you would like that pitcher when he's a senior in high school, approximately a senior in high school, he's starting to go into college, you, you would like for him to be able to repeat his delivery 70% of the time. And if he did, and we're, and we're going to use 100% of the daily max as recommended, I can understand that. So it's 70%. If the pitcher is repeating his delivery 70%, and according to the pitch smart guidelines, he shouldn't go over 95 pitches at 15, 16 years old. And he throws 90, 95 pitches. I'm not going to argue too much with that. All right. The problem is, is that I used to expect pitchers in their first year of pro ball in the minor leagues to repeat their delivery 70% of the time. And in each year, I would move it up 10%. So the guidelines are good as guidelines, right? But each individual is different. And a majority of individuals are probably going to repeat their delivery less than 50% of the time when they're in those age groups. And that's when injuries happen when you're not repeating. Correct. Delivery. Yeah. Is, and you make this point at some point each show. 
and I think it's profound and I think our audience needs to just cling to it. We're trying to train these young kids like they're professional athletes. We're trying to mimic or not. I say we, I don't mean you and I, I mean, people out there, they're, they're trying to ask these kids to exert the energy, physical and mental as professional athletes. And it just is not feasible. They cannot do it. They cannot sustain it. Their bodies aren't ready for it yet. Um, they don't have the necessary experiences mentally to do it yet. And that's, and you, you mentioned the coaches, dads out there that are coaching this level of baseball that Jim's talking about, you need to make it your business to understand um, exertion. Because to me, that's the primary focus of pitching coaches at this young age. Not many people are going to have your knowledge, if at all, that are coaching these young kids in terms of how to mechanically get them to do the things they're supposed to do and give them the mental uh, framework to know how to pitch. But if you're a dad and you want to do bare bones, control exertion. These kids, it's okay to get them on the mound to throw, but they shouldn't be going max out all the time. That's your job to control exertion. That's why you're there as a parent, as a guide, you know, as a, as a, even if you're a volunteer coach. Yes. And even, even before you've reached the level where you're comfortable in understanding exertion and effort, um, effort levels when a guy's throwing a baseball, realize that a pretty good inning on all levels of baseball, a pretty good inning is if you execute where you can average around 15 pitches per inning. That's where we kind of want to be at. Now, the guys that you can, at, at, at all ages, the guys that can do that, well, they're the ones that should be the starting pitchers because they can give you four to five innings based on the guidelines. Now, if you're out there watching a young man pitch at any of these younger age levels, and he's now up to 25 pitches in the inning, even if we don't have a gauge at what his exact exertion level is, you know, subjectively from watching, we know as we're getting towards 30 pitches that he's going to get fatigued and he's going to be tired. And that in itself is exertion, right? Um, I've been to too many tournaments where all of a sudden, you know, forget forget about what the max is or the, or the fact that the guy threw uh, in three games in a row. Where a kid's out there for over 35 pitches. That's really a problem for me. Yeah. I mean, in pro ball, if a guy threw more than 35 pitches an inning, we took him out of the game. We'll go get him another day. Do we want to take him down to the bullpen and maybe in a controlled environment, add 20, 25 pitches, 30, 35 pitches, depending on where he's at as far as exertion level? Yeah, that, that would work. But you go to these tournaments, and next thing you know, a nine-year-old, ten-year-old is pitching. And, well, we're following the guidelines. He can throw 75 pitches today. And he throws them in in two or three innings. That's a lot of hard work. That's a lot of effort. Yeah. That's the exertion but, you're talking about. He's, he's more fatigued than the guy that threw that over five innings, let's say, or six. Correct. Yeah. But then that manager or coach decides, well, he doesn't really have it today right now. So let's take him out at 45 pitches that he threw in two innings, and then I can bring him back for the next game. Yeah. 
or I can start them the next day. I mean, that doesn't make sense, but these are the loopholes which come in play when we, you know, even if, and, and believe me, many of these leagues and tournaments that are, uh, are out there right now, they don't even go by, by pitch smart pitch count guidelines. They go by innings. Um, the last one, last tournament I was at, and I, and I really liked how they did it. And I, the coaches, at least in our division, were smart. Maybe it was because of higher level. But I played our group, which is a lot of – we have all a couple 10th graders, but majority ninth graders and 8th graders. And then we have my youngest son, Tanner, who's a 7th grader. We played in the, the college prep division, which is guys who are getting ready to start college in a couple weeks. And the kids did great. And the rules for pitching in that division were – again, this, this was uh, – prospect select and, and, uh, and then triple crown was coaches, your adults, please use your head with your pitching. And they were around there to monitor, to make sure that kids weren't getting abused and whatnot. But I, I loved the way they did it. And I loved the way the coaches were responsible and they were not throwing kids back to back days. They were trying to let kids while they were comfortable, stretch it out to get, you know, five, six innings in where they weren't throwing, like you said, 35 pitches in an inning. And uh, absolutely loved it. But again, you do that at the nine-year-old level. These maniacs that are there, they'll 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 throw a kid till the cows come home. But um, yeah, I mean, I I look at the I'm looking at the pitch smart guidelines right now, and uh, one area which I don't necessarily agree is they're allowing seven and eight-year-olds to pitch on zero days rest, back-to-back days. In professional baseball, I didn't let the relief pitchers go on back-to-back days till they were in double A. So a majority of those guys are 23, 24 years old. Um, yeah, what, that, explain, that's why. explain why. And you're dealing with grown men that are physically matured and mentally, for the most part, mature. But why, why was that something you didn't promote? Because my job at that time was to develop pitchers. Now, when you're in the minor leagues, would you like your team to be successful and be competitive? Yes, of course you would. But my job, okay, was to develop pitchers. Now, would I have conversation with the pitching coaches that we do have to let these guys be be placed in difficult situations and, and challenged and have to overcome them and the whole thing. Yes. But we can control the environment in that they don't have to pitch back to back days because for the most part in major league baseball, the setup guy and the closer might pitch back to back days. And then maybe the seventh inning guy. I can't give you the exact number, but I don't believe all three of those guys have pitched three days in a row on a particular team. Because maybe if the closer had to pitch three days in a row and he had the physical ability that he could do it, then uh, the setup guy might have to close the fourth day, you know, where the closer can only go two days in a row. So if these conversations are going on, in the major leagues about how to handle a bullpen correctly and make sure everybody has, you know, recuperated enough where they can execute their pitches. How do we expect a nine or 10 year old to pitch on back-to-back days? And in these tournaments, we're not talking about 
sometimes back-to-back days. We're talking about the morning game and then the afternoon game. Okay, so a, a young pitcher, little league age, so 12, 12 and under, let's say, throws one inning, and according to these guidelines, throws 20 pitches, so they say he could pitch on back-to-back days. And that coach interprets it that, okay, I'm going to take him on now so I can use him in the afternoon game. So the guy has warmed up, pitched, cooled down, sat for a couple hours, ate lunch. Now we want him to warm up again, pitch again, and cool down again. Not very helpful in the overall development of that of that young ball player. Not at all. And I no, know we, no. you know, we, we both kind of excuse people who may not have the same backgrounds as, as you or I, but if you go back to, if you ever, if you ever uh, think of it in legal terms, ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law. They don't give you, you don't, you don't get off because you're ignorant of the law. And I, I kind of like to think pitching specifically should have the same guidelines by it, that ignorance to, to this type of stuff you're talking about, which is why we're doing the podcast is no excuse for a, a parent or a volunteer coach to be breaking this or someone who is in the know. Uh, intentional abuse is even worse. Yeah, that's a good one. It, it's like if you want to say that some people are drunk on winning, they're completely intoxicated by the fact that we have to win, right? Well, if you're drunk driving a car and you run somebody over, you don't get off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, – yeah, you, you talked position versatility earlier about the youth. You know how it's important for them to develop, um, play multiple spots. Uh, you know, not get typecast. You know, I I talked to you about Tanner a lot because he's he's been a very skilled catcher, but I want him to play multiple spots. And so I play him up, so he learns to play the outfield, learns to play all the infield spots. I think that's important for his overall growth. If he ends up being a catcher, God bless him. He's going to know the other parts of the field even better. Um, I do it with my older son too, but. Isn't it? Do you find it ironic that in youth baseball, where it's important to have position versatility, they do not promote it for the most part? But now we have professional baseball where money and jobs are on the line. And not only do they push position versatility, but I think they do it haphazardly. I don't think they, uh, the guys that are making decisions put just, ah, it's easy to play second base, easy to play left field, easy. And they just move these guys around like they're, they're little checker pieces. Yes. Now that, that's, that's become slightly af- um, affected by the uh, not being able to shift anymore. And you're starting to now see where there's defensive liabilities. Oh, thank God for second base. As a former second baseman, I was getting ticked watching them putting the, the sluggers at second base, just disrespecting that position for the last few years. Yeah, the, the, the thing in, in youth baseball, why for me position versatility is so vital for a young ball player is um, we know in a perfect world we would we would love the ability to play at least two different sports. Um, when I was in high school, I played basketball and baseball. In the fall, sometimes I'd go practice with the cross-country team. So I would be in better shape for basketball when it started. And my style of basketball, and I was only 6'2", um, I patterned my basketball after – I'm going to play like the modern day Steph Curry, but in my day it was John Havlicek versus Bill Bradley. I never stopped running. 
because my mindset was I'm going to be in great shape when baseball starts. So it was beneficial for me to do all of those type of activities for a variety of reasons, both motor skill development, learn competitiveness, learn to challenge yourself in things that you might not be naturally gifted at and all those positive reasons. But in today's world, we don't, you know, it's wrong. I mean, how many times have you heard stories where uh, somebody wants to go to basketball uh, uh, basketball summer camps and uh, the football coach says, well, football practice starts, you can't do that. Or the baseball guy says, well, if you don't play on the, if you don't play on the travel team during the summer session, we're not going to let you on the team in next spring. Oh, yeah. Or, well, I'm going to do uh, basketball skill activities in the fall to get ready for basketball season in the winter. Oh, you can't do that. We have uh, fall baseball. Well, find another travel team because if you're not going to play, okay, we'll just give your spot away. Or I've experienced where somebody does that. And nobody even tells him not to do it. And then he uh, comes back in the spring thinking he's on his travel team. And they said, oh, no, we gave your spot away. We Somebody came and took your spot in the fall and we gave it to him permanently. We go through that sport to sport, Jim. We've gone through with basketball and baseball here where I've had to make trips to the high schools to talk to the coaches where they'll get so puffed up with ego that they'll tell a kid, if you don't come to this, you know, two week, um, you know, what's a loophole rule anyway, where they're working with a, with, with their team in the summer that you're not going to make the high school team. And we've done it. We've gone, gone through basketball to basketball, baseball to baseball. Right? I'd make personal trips, to all the coaches and say, Hey, listen, we're trying to work with you and we don't put restrictions on the kids. Please don't, you know, stress a kid out that way. And I kind of remind them too, is I, you know, we grew up in an era where high school sports was super important where, that's where recruiting was done. That's where development done. That's where the best coaches were. But I hate to break the news to people as much as we bang on. And I, I hate that it's the case, but high school sports has become obsolete. And if kids want to go to play at the next level, because, because of recruiting days, coaches don't go watch it unless they're babysitting a the kid. They're not going there to find players when they can go to a summer tournament, like we talked about, and they can see 600 kids in one day, as opposed sure. to maybe seeing one. So I, this, this, banging of heads where it's like we're talking either it's two opposing sports or even the same sport crippling a kid's opportunity by placing, I mean, really ignorant restrictions on a kid. They're, they're arbitrary. They let the kid go. I mean, I'm, I, you know, my, I played two college sports for four years. Not one time did either of my college coaches battle each other or with me about either sport. They, they wanted to make it work. They said, if this kid can play both, let's foster that environment where we're, we're crushing kids at the age of 10 and, um, and stressing them out to the point stress. I mean, you know, I mean, you're, you're as a cerebral a coach that I've ever been around and that type of stress does not do a kid any good. Correct. And the thing about it, when you, this now makes position versatility when you first start learning how to play baseballs, even more, more important, more vital to the development of that ball player, because they're not, they're not receiving as large a motor skill foundation in their development at an early age because they're not playing multiple sports. So yes, in a perfect world, we should play multiple sports, but it's becoming more and more difficult in order to accomplish that. And then we decide that we're going to play baseball 
and we're going to play baseball and all the doctors and all the trainers and everybody says you cannot play baseball year round. You have to take a break, especially pitchers, especially throwers. And we're only the shortstop or only the right fielder or only a pitcher. I mean, the saddest thing that I've ever seen is you go to a high school game and they have a pitching staff that doesn't play another position. I mean, we're, we're training the athleticism right out of the pitchers. Um, you know, it goes back to, uh, you know, in the old days when baseball players weren't making enough money, in the offseason they'd go do manual labor. They became strong as oxes. That's right. Nowadays we hire a personal trainer uh, in the offseason and pay them, and the personal trainers are attempting recreating movements that are similar to manual labor. Um, it just doesn't make sense. We want to we want to create the largest motor skill foundation so that a, adjusting and adapting and acquiring new motor skills as we age becomes easier and we do it quicker because of our broader base that we've already learned. And you go to a ball game and people play an entire game, an entire season at one position. Now, if that's not because the coach is there to win or the adult or the parent is there to say, my son's the all-star shortstop. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what is. And in the long run, again, we've kind of we've kind of lost the battle. You know, I don't know if we'll lose the war, but we kind of lost the battle as far as in a lot of communities, as far as playing multiple sports. I cannot stress enough: if that's the community you live in, your son, if he's a baseball player, has to learn to play multiple positions and it'll come back to benefit them in their motor skill development, their adjustments and how they play the game as they get older. Yeah. Uh, If not, they're going to be limited. It's the most common question. I get both those as far as position stuff and then multiple sports. I think from a learning standpoint, you're, you're, you're into the the learning development of, of kids I think it's important, especially if a kid's, let's say, I have, a, I have a young man that plays basketball for us, phenomenal baseball player, plays shortstop for me. I could put him anywhere. Pitches, he's 16 years old. He's a 2025 graduate, 2025 graduate. Love him to pieces. I mean, he's just that type of kid. He's a tough kid. Natural position, I think down the road, probably a center fielder, second baseman, middle guy, but I could put him anywhere. And he, he loves to play anywhere. I made him play basketball this year with our, our program because he wasn't as good in basketball, good athlete, but a little unsure of himself. And I really wanted him to feel like what it was to be a beginner again. Um, what well, he wasn't like beginning over again, but he was good enough athlete to compete, but not skilled enough in the nuances and that experience. And he, he verbalized this to me the other day, that experience of having to slow down and be a beginner again, he felt has made him a better baseball player, not just from a physical standpoint, because he's getting, you know, motor skills with basketball, but, it forced him to learn how he learned again and, uh, and kept it in check. And that's a part that goes untouched. People are so fearful of having their weaknesses exposed. They won't. If they're really good in one sport, not as good in another, well, I just want to work on this because I'm never going to be a pro basketball player. Well, chances are you're not going to be a pro baseball player either based on the odds. But, um, you know, I think from a learning standpoint, it's good to be a beginner. 
at some point in time and, and learn, learn how you learn again. Yes. Yes. One quick story. Yeah. Dave, that's very similar to what you just brought up. So as I've stated in the past, I have, I have a brother, Mike Rooney, who's 15 years younger than I am, and he played professional baseball also. He's now the head coach at Don Bosco Prep in Ramsey, New Jersey. Uh, very successful program. So when he was in high school, where we all went to high school, North Rockland High School in the suburb in Rockland County, North Rockland, uh, suburb of New York City. Traditionally, we had phenomenal football teams and outstanding baseball teams. So I played in high school in the late 70s. The coach that was there during the 70s, I think they won seven or eight of the 10 section championships. And at that time, New York State didn't have state championships. So we fast forward 15 years and uh, the teams were so good that, that the freshmen and sophomore usually played on the JV team, and then the juniors and seniors played on the varsity team. North Rockland High School baseball is in the midst when my brother was a uh, sophomore. North Rockland High School baseball won their first uh, New York State championship when New York State expanded and allowed um, for baseball to continue to play championships. My brother was a shortstop. His best friend growing up was a shortstop. The star football player, who's one of his best friends today, and the st- and uh, and two sons played, played both played for my brother uh, on this past championship New, York, uh, New Jersey State Championship team at Don Bosco Prep was a shortstop. So as this rivalry, the high school was made up of two separate towns, always very good in baseball. And I'm not going to say you hated each other, but the competition was intense all through the summers, all through, uh, you know, junior high school, middle school, right? All separate, compete, compete, compete. Now come together and make up North Rockland High School, a highly competitive environment with some really good ballplayers. And now they win their first state championship. And now I'm pretty sure the three guys that play shortstop were in the second year were juniors. So I don't remember the exact time period, but as juniors and seniors, the star quarterback played shortstop. He was outstanding quarterback on a very good football team. He, he later went to Duke University, played third base, was drafted by the Cleveland Indians, played third base up through, I think, about eight ball and broke his foot. And that was kind of the downfall. My brother played third and the other shortstop played second. And then the senior year, their catcher got injured. So the second baseman played catcher and they won another championship. And then the senior year, my brother had a bit of an elbow injury from diving for a ball when he was playing shortstop and uh, didn't pitch, then was freed by the doctor, let go, released by the doctor that he could throw a little bit, comes in relief in the state semifinals in upstate New York, 
and he's throwing like 96 and 8, 97 miles an hour, and they win the game, and then they go in the championship, and they win the game, and, and they just had a, you know, a fabulous year. Well, what happened is going into the senior year, they had maybe maybe it was the second or third year they had done this, just like they do right now today in South Carolina here with at Catawba Ridge High School. Um, they have a fall program, but the fall program cannot be coached by anyone from the school, and the association is not with the school, but it's a program that they put together, and then they communicate with other schools in the area or even travel teams and they play a fall season. So they did the same thing in New York, but the individual who had volunteered to coach, uh, who had done it the year before because of work obligations, could, couldn't do it. There was nobody that could do it. They couldn't find anyone. So I volunteered that, uh, I'll, I'll help you guys in the fall. I'll, I'll coach the program. And my main goal in coaching the program is I had already dealt – all of the players on the team knew who I, who I was and the whole thing. We all had a very good relationship. They were great guys. The first game we're playing uh, across the Hudson River in Westchester County, and the players are telling me that the pitcher we're facing is the um, best pitcher in the section. And, you know, he's the preseason – pitcher of the year or whatever. I said, okay. So we go to take infield before the game. And I tell my brother to go to left field, the shortstop to go to center field and the second baseman, the other shortstop to go to right field. And I brought in all the underclassmen who were either infielders or outfielders. And I said, you'll take in, you'll take infield um, during infield practice. Well, all the adults, anybody at the game, everything was thinking, what the heck is going on here? Well, uh, there was a couple of outcomes from that. One, the underclassmen and the juniors on the team were ecstatic that they were getting the opportunity to play their natural position. And the three guys that for the past three years, everybody kept comparing, even though they were all good friends, keep comparing and the arguments and the adult situations and the politics that went on of this guy's better than this or who's this and everybody's taking sides. And this is way before social media. They were so relieved that they were going out on the baseball field to have fun. And uh, to add to the enjoyment, I told them that we were going to take at the time was called a shadow infield. I was not going to hit the ball, but we were going to go around the horn and we were going to make the plays and we were going to make them from the outfield and the infield, you know, shadow infield. And there was a short porch in right at this ballpark, a street and a row of houses. I said, so guys, what's going to happen is when it's time for me to hit the pop up to the catcher, I'm going to throw the ball up and I'm going to hit it over those houses. Before the ball hits the ground, I want everybody to sprint into the dugout, yelling at the top of your lungs. I want some real live enthusiasm. These guys thought it was so much fun. The other team had no idea what the heck's going on. That in the first inning, it went out against the best pitcher in the, in the section and scored 10 runs on him. So... Besides all the physical things we talk about, surprise, 
besides the motor skills, surprise this, surprise that. Sometimes if you play multiple sports, the player knows I'm not necessarily the best team, best guy on the team or whatever. And forget about all the positive things he can learn. Sometimes he's having fun. Yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap it up here. And you're, you're and if we use if we use position versatility, yeah, within did. even one sport, the same things happen. It almost releases re- releases the pressure, lets the air out of the valve, and they get back to having fun, and enjoy their doing, and their enthusiasm increases. And then when they have to do the hard stuff, the training, the workouts, the competition, they remember that it's still about fun. I thought about that when you talked about flipping those guys to the outfield. That's where my 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 mind was at. You know what a relief, and that's how you, you verbalize that. They got to have fun. It's uh, you're 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 you study. You're, you're always learning. I read, uh, and I'll I'll remember where, and I'll send it to you. But it's not me making it up. It's a neurological study. You're 33 percent smarter when you smile. Um. And then that's my, I, I always ask myself the question. I wonder if I'd be how much smarter I'd be if I actually smiled once in a while sometimes. But uh, kids got to smile. They have, have to have a good time. They've got to breathe. It's got to be fun. We, we forget that often. So great point. That's a great way to end the show. What can yes. we look forward to next week? I know you're always, you're three weeks ahead. I know that with you. You're- well, in closing, because you brought that point up, one of the, one of the, we spoke about flow last week. And one of the parameters uh, that Dr. C uh, talked about was, um, Thorough, thorough engrossment and enjoyment of the activity at hand. So it's exactly what you just said. You got to smile and have fun when you're doing it. Yeah, correct. I love it. What what, what are we going to touch on? You want to tease the audience a little bit for next week, or you want to hold it in? What are we going to cover? Well, I think we're going to get back to uh, a couple of topics about. Um, not just hip mobility, but our goal is to create stability and proper movement patterns <clears throat> before we start to focus on creating force. So we'll hit on a couple of things uh, in hitting and pitching and throwing that fall under that parameter and some of the ways that we can address those situations. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, Jim, thanks for a great show. I know we have a sophisticated audience. I know your show is very well received. Um, our audience eats this stuff up. Uh, like candy. They, they love it. So thanks for bringing in again today. Uh, not not just the, the research and the studies, but personal experience and then some, some stories to kind of go along with it. I uh, love, love these shows. And for our audience, 40,000 plus subscribers. We're in 73 countries now. We just hit in, got into Cuba. Um, keep supporting us. We'll keep bringing you this great content every week. This episode 245, Toe the Rubber, Real Voice of the Game. Jim, have a great rest of the week. Great show, buddy. Dave, thank you. Talk to you all next week. Okay.